he was uh he was i want to get it on the podcast hi jackson okay <laughs> he was our he was our emotional support dog at the dispensary from day one he was a puppy and um you know the, the beautiful thing about golden retriever is people just naturally feel comfortable yeah if they're not afraid of dogs around golden retrievers and um people patients would come in you know and just have their affairs in order they would um you know be very sad you know everything tried everything and nothing worked and they were looking for cannabis as the holy grail you know i always set expectations about that and that's another story but um, you know Jax would walk into the room and the room would just change you know into some into a happy place so that's what that's what uh, this little guy did and uh, he did it very well Awesome. I'm glad we could get him in the into the podcast. Well, Joseph, I want to give you this space uh, to just uh, formally introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, tell us who you are, and uh, you mentioned you've been in the cannabis industry for a while. So, yeah, I guess uh, I was one of the pioneers. Uh, you know, back in 2013, um, <clears throat> I was aware Illinois was going through the legislative process to legalize medical cannabis. And I just thought, hey, you know, this could be pretty cool. I, I saw an episode on 60 Minutes called The Green Rush. And um, it was, you know, that was from Colorado. And I just figured, okay, it's coming to Illinois. Let's see what we can do to, you know, I, I can do to get a license. And so uh, initially I just, you know, started reaching out and I connected with a, a group, um, you know, a guy who owned a um, compounding dispensary in Chicago and, and his partner and, um, you know, and, and one of the things I want to mention, and I think this is good advice is, you know, for your plan A, you know, you got your plan A, you should always have a plan B, <laughs> because oftentimes plan A doesn't work out. And so these guys were great guys. Um, but, you know, the guy who owned the compounding business was uh, was in a, was in finance accountant, I believe. And uh, he just got freaked out when he started looking at, you know, some of the uh, some of the obstacles, uh, namely from his perspective, 280E, which is um, an IRS uh, rule that uh, doesn't allow um, business, expense, business expenses to be deducted in an illegal operation, which is a cannabis um, dispensary, which is <laughs> illegal at the federal level. So they backed out. Um, but at the same time, my plan B was um, a neighbor of mine, our daughters played together. Uh, and we were good friends with this couple. They're both lawyers. And um, and I kept him sort of up to speed on what you know I wanted to do. And um, and that was my plan B, and that actually worked out. Um, he's a lawyer. Uh, he worked for a big law firm, um, and uh, he had a boss who was, you know, of course, also a lawyer. And um, and uh, you know, and, and and we had some meetings at the very beginning. Um, you know, we needed to raise some money. We all put in money, but at the same time, we thought, well, let's just go ahead and and uh, put together three applications with the hope of getting one license. If we got three licenses, then, well, you know, we're going to need a source, uh, you know, a larger source of money. And so the uh, the owner of this law firm um, wasn't necessarily interested, uh, but he had a son who was passionate about the industry. So, uh so we had a meeting at my friend's law firm, and it was, um, you know, the young lawyer, myself, the old lawyer, owner, wealthy guy, and his son. And um, <laughs> and after that meeting, um, you know, I went back to my friend's office. You know, we closed the door, and I I said, and and can I use profanity here? 
Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, you gotta fucking be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> I said that son has gotta be um you know just the most well, anyways, he he wasn't a very smart guy, but mm-hmm. I and I, you know I I I don't you know uh, I don't diss him for that. I just think that you know his issue was he thought he was the smartest person in the room, and that's where the problem began. Yeah. Um, the old man said yes, and uh, we had our big source of funding, and so we got another partner who was another pharmacist who owned some compounding pharmacies, not the same ones that I originally my plan A, and. Um, so we formed this partnership, two lawyers, two pharmacists, seemed like a good mix of individuals, um, you know, to really put together a quality application. Um, every meeting that we had um, was wrought with um, just issues. Um, you know, the son who, um, you know, wanted to be very involved, you know, just really didn't have the capability uh, and the smarts to, re- to really do anything. Um, and it was always, always arguments. Um, and these meetings were just yelling and screaming and, and, and just a lot of nasty words. And, uh, and then and the other pharmacist got kind of tired of the whole thing. And he sort of bowed out after we opened our dispensary. Um, but, you know, I want to I get into the good stuff. The good stuff is that we opened um, on December 21st, 2015. Uh, we were successful getting one license, and that was in um, the North Shore. And we were the 12th dispensary to open. Um, The first, I think the second dispensary to open was um, just seven or eight miles north of us. And they had 400 people uh, at their door on day one. Um, We had three people at our door on day one. We had nobody on day two. Um, You know, I had a staff. I, you know, we were just all ready to go. And, um, you know, we had to cut hours, cut staff. you know, it, it was a very dicey first year, uh, just because we had to establish ourselves as being unique and different in which which we eventually did. And that uniqueness and difference uh, really came about because I'm a pharmacist. Um, I've got a master's in business. And, uh, you know, I hired other pharmacists and we had a hospice nurse and we had healthcare professionals on board, really on board to help patients. And that's the reason why I got into this business was to help patients, not necessarily just, you know, see that that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Right. Um, And um, so we had a humble beginning and we did some things that were very unique. We uh, we had formed relationships with two local colleges of pharmacy and we had fourth year pharmacy students doing uh, for the first time in the country, one of their required it's um, advanced pharmacy practice experience. It's called APPE clinical rotations for six weeks, but for the first time in a medical cannabis dispensary. And so every six weeks we had uh, you know, two new fourth year pharmacy students coming in. And one of their requirements was to give a, a presentation to the staff. So every Tuesday morning, we would have a staff meeting before opening and we, we would have these pharmacy students you know, talk about one of the qualifying conditions and wow. the drugs that are used for it, and then how cannabis could be a better option. And so over the course of, uh, you know, two years of this every Tuesday, I, I probably had the most um, uh, educated staff, you know, in, in the state of Illinois. And uh, no other dispensary in the state of Illinois had what we had, full-time healthcare professionals working. 
full time. And, um, and that, that's sort of like, you know, how we um, differentiated ourselves and we got very busy as soon as people started realizing, hey, you know, there's, um, there's a dispensary with, with actual medical professionals in there. And, um, you know, doctors couldn't recommend, you know, our dispensary, but what they would do is say, okay, you know, they would have a patient and they would certify their patient for medical cannabis. And they would say, well, here's a list of the dispensaries. You know, there's ones in Mundelein, this one's in Deerfield, this one in Buffalo Grove has pharmacists, you know, on staff and this one, you know, and so they would just, you know, do it like that. And that sort of skirted, you know, the the issue of them actually recommending a specific dispensary. Right. And normally patients would just sort of like, you know, their, their eyes would light up and they would perk up and they say, oh, wow, you know, I'm going to go to that dispensary. So um, and then I started giving presentations at cannabis uh, conventions and pharmacy, pharmacy conventions. And, you know, early on, what was interesting is pharmacists are generally very conservative. And my first presentation was in Florida at the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. And, uh, you know, and I would, I came up with this uh, informal survey. I would, you know, before I started talking or presenting, I would uh, say, okay, you're all, you're all healthcare professionals in the audience. Let's see a show of hands for those pharmacists that believe that we, we should take front stage in this industry. We should have pharmacists in every dispensary. And, you know, back then, um, you know, maybe half the hands would go up and the other half would not. And I would say, well, I hope I can change some minds after my presentation. And so, but more recently, I gave a presentation in Chicago to about 250 pharmacists at, at a local uh, restaurant and um, all 250 hands went up. So there's been a groundswell of interest. And, and I know many pharmacists that are, are in this industry and are doing the right thing. But, um, but it, you know, the, the whole idea of pharmacist mandates are only in a handful of states. Uh, right. Really I was actually just Googling that. I was trying to see. I, I was aware that some states mandate it, but I couldn't remember which ones. Well, you know, uh, Pennsylvania's one. Um, is New York one? Louisiana. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have a list in front it's of me. But I know there's a handful of states yeah. that, that do mandate pharmacists. But I think the issue, and I, I'm thinking about Pennsylvania in particular, where there is a pharmacist mandate. I mean, some of the owners really took that seriously, and they had pharmacists out front, you know, talking to patients, doing the consultations. And I'll get into what we did with consultations. Um, but other other dispensaries, and, and actually this has happened over time as these dispensaries have been sold to big MSOs. Um, you know, I, I, pharmacists are expensive. And I think these big MSOs, you know, sort of look at the bottom line and they, you know, they, 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 they begrudgingly, you know, have pharmacists on, on staff, but they don't really have them out front unless the patient specifically asks for it. So it's not like a, like an active kind of involvement. It's more of a, they put them in the back room to certify patients and maybe they, they part-time or something like that. Um, in our dispensary, what we would do with every patient walking in um, we, it, it, and generally they, they were open to this. Um, we would sit down and have anywhere from 20 minutes to a two hour consultation. I mean, some patients needed a lot of handholding. Sure. And I actually had patients that I would say, you know, I don't think, you know, cannabis should be a first line for you. You know, here's some drugs. Anyways. So, you know, I actually turned some patients away, but 
um, we had a beautiful situation. Uh, I had product specialists and I never used the term bud tender. We always use the term product specialist. And uh, I would, you know, have this consultation and I would take notes and, um, you know, the, the patient would fill out this form that was similar to, um, you know, what you would fill out if you went to a doctor's office for the first time, you know, all your demographics, your medical history, your family history, your eating and sleeping habits, the drugs you take. And we would take that form and we would review that while we were, you know, interviewing the patient. And uh, I caught so many drug interactions that, um, <laughs> you know, were causing some of the patient's problems, you know, um, serotonin syndrome is, is one of the things, and there's uh, drug combinations that can cause that. And I say, have you talked to your doctor about taking these two drugs together? And, and, and the, the, the response was usually, no, I, I really haven't, but thanks for letting me know. And so, you know, we would, um, and then you know, once I determined the, the cannabinoid, you know, ratios and the, the, the dosing intervals and the route of administration, I would have a talk um, you know, with one of my product specialists, I say, okay, here's this, you know, patient, you know, X, Y, Z. And um, this is what I feel we, we need to give to this patient to help them. And then my product specialist who they, they knew the inventory, they knew the products much better than I did, um, would pick a product. And, um, and that's how it worked out. And uh, we had a lot of successes. Normally we would hit the bullseye 50% of the time, you know, with the first visit, but then we would tweak um, in uh, visits like in, in a week or two weeks or a month later, um, if they really weren't getting uh, the benefit that we, we hoped they would get. So <laughs> you have any questions? I mean, that was- Yeah, sort of I do. Awesome. Yeah, go ahead. I, I do have a few. I like that how you described you approached this, especially when folks consider, just for context, context folks, this was one of the most regulated medical cannabis programs in the nation and i'm not even talking about the the regulations themselves i'm actually referring to the low number of uh conditions that you could qualify for and so i think that what you did was just it seemed more critical then than ever because it was such a limited list so i wanted to just thank you for putting such an emphasis on patient care right so thank you i just wanted to say that and and i wanted I wanted you to maybe get into deeper something that you alluded to twice that I agree with, but I know that some people might find it a little controversial. So let's tiptoe. You mentioned that cannabis may not be a holy grail. I agree with that. I don't think it's the solution to everything. And you even mentioned that some patients, after speaking to them a bit, you turn them away. I've had to do the same thing with my friends where they have picked up somewhere in pop culture that they're having mm-hmm. issues and they're like, I Cole, I know you smoke weed and you do the, can you, can we smoke weed together? And I'm like, what, why do you want it? Like, I mean, sure. Yeah. But let me ask you, why do you want to do that? And then they get into it. And I'm like, you know, there's a concept of set and setting, right? With, and that's usually used for psychedelic drugs. But what I described to them was it sounds like your mindset just and this is an anecdotal experience, but I was like, your mindset doesn't sound like what you need right now is cannabis. It sounds like what we need to do is go on a walk and talk to each other. And, and you know, so but if they ended up still deciding that they wanted cannabis, but like you say, I don't view it as an off the hip, holy grail solution. So I'm curious to hear your perspective and how you approached that with uh, patients, because uh, I have similar ideas, I think, based off of what you said. 
Well, let's let's take an extreme example of that. Sure. Um, you know, we had you know many cancer patients walking into the dispensary, and um, you know I think the most important thing that we did was set expectations. Um, you know, some of them were just you know on chemotherapy. Some of them had just been diagnosed, and were looking to do something other than radiation and chemotherapy. So you know, sitting down, um, we always wanted to let them know that this isn't you know the holy grail that you know there there are some anecdotal you know studies out there that actually show how cannabis you know <clears throat> you know kills cancer cells but you know and that, and then what I would do with these patients I would we would talk about two things we would talk about okay let's talk about you know some of the stuff that's going on with you you know the palliative the palliative side of this you know, the, the sleeping, the, the, the pain, the anxiety, the depression, you know, we can treat those, those things with, with cannabis pretty effectively, but as far as treating your cancer, um, I would always, um, share with them, uh, two podcasts from a doctor in, uh, Colorado, Dr. Joe Goldrich, who, um, is still around, but I believe he's retired now. And he's, um, he's an, he, he treats I'm not sure if he's an oncologist or if he's a medical doctor, but he treated specifically cancer patients with cannabis and he did studies and he did presentations and he did research and he did a couple of um, podcasts and I would share those podcasts with these patients. I say, listen to these two hour long podcasts and then let's talk again about, you know, using cannabis for your cancer. Because uh, you know, I'm 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 not sure this is really going to help you, um, and we have to be careful about this. I don't want to go up against you know your oncologist and and the chemotherapy regime that they prescribed for you, uh, and you know, and and then you know if we did go ahead and and go that path of using cannabis, we had um, our own protocol as well as we had. Uh, you know, protocols from the CDC, uh, not not the CDC, um, from from these doctors that used cannabis to help patients on flooding the system with cannabinoids over a specific period of time with specific cannabinoids, and let's just see how that works out over a period of time. So so we would we would approach it very carefully, and I think to your point, uh, you, you just can't say this is the holy grail. This is this is what's going to help you. Um, it might, but we, we just don't have enough. And could I put it a different way really quick? If people aren't understanding Holy Grail, it may not be a universal fix, right? Is that a fair way? That's a better way. (laughs) Yeah. So, and I guess the reason I fixated on that is because look, I love how easy it is to acquire medical cannabis. In fact, my brother, uh, who is a Marine and suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, just got his medical card uh, last week. And it was a very easy process for him versus the experience that I had where my doctor, like, we don't have to get into it all, but um, I ended up having to go to uh, another doctor before I went to my primary care. Uh, He just didn't feel comfortable signing off on it immediately and ultimately did. But anyways, what I'm trying to highlight and what I feel the, what I feel you provided is, is that palliative care. And I don't know exactly what that word meant. So I had to Google it. Palliative care is specialized medical, medical care for people living with a serious illness. Again, at the time it was only people with serious illnesses. And 
I guess what I'm trying to say is you filled a gap. Most people don't understand that this isn't a prescription to cannabis. It's a recommendation. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I feel like that's the that's the gap you were filling. Well, do, do you, you know, know we were we we sort of were you know coined ourselves as pharmacist practitioners, and um, you know doctors, and and I don't believe this is the case anywhere in the country, where a doctor can actually write a prescription. You know, right. you know, take, uh, you know, Maui Waui, uh, two, two puffs every four hours, you know, for, for whatever. Um, it's always a recommendation and the doctor has to fill out a form with specific information about that patient and then check off a box for one of the qualifying conditions and then give that to the patient to submit to, to the authorities and then they'll get a medical cannabis card. So, so what we did is we, we sort of took the role of that practitioner um, to help that patient, guide that patient to the proper dosing intervals and, and uh, ratios of cannabinoids that could possibly help them with the condition they came in with. And like I say, and you kind of, you said it there at the beginning, I view the big difference is like, this is one of the correct me if I'm wrong, please. But this is like one of the only areas in medicine where the doctor kind of he does recommend and you kind of just do your own thing. Like you think about any other case where you go to the prescription. I go to Walgreens and I hand them a piece of paper and they have to get exactly what that piece of paper says. And I can't be like, no, actually, I do like that. <laughs> like you can do that at a dispensary and your doctor doesn't know about it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think this goes back to just the illegality that, yep. you know, cannabis is under and the lack of research and the fact that pharmaceutical companies, by and large, really can't do anything with this. But, you know what, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Uh, pharmaceutical companies, and I used to work for a pharmaceutical company, I was in sales, and they focused on single molecule drug entities, okay? So here's this molecule and they researched it and they, they, they brought it to market and they promoted it and it was for whatever, diabetes, hypertension, whatever. <laughs> you know, as well as I do, that cannabis is, has well over, you know, a hundred molecules. Yeah. There's cannabinoids, there's flavonoids, there's terpenes, there's, you know, um, precursor acids. There's all these things that sort of work together, you know, in an entourage kind of effect. So how's a pharmaceutical company going to go ahead and do research and development on something that complex? Right. I'm not sure if this is ever going to be a pharmaceutical product. Um, so we're not going to have phys physicians writing prescriptions for something coming out of a pharmaceutical product for a product that they probably won't be able to do the research and development on. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I think to put prove to, to prove your point, uh, using an actual cannabis example like Epidiolex, right? Like that is just CBD. Am I proving your point kind of where you're saying like that? Because I'm thinking that's the one pharmaceutical. Well, Marinol too. I guess Marinol is is synthetic. like synthetic yeah, synthetic THC. THC yeah. Right. So, but it, I guess is that to your point? Like it's funny when we see these pharmaceutical products, we see something that's synthetic. We don't see anything close to the whole plant, right? Yeah, and there are some you know natural pharmaceuticals. I mean, you know, aspirin comes from I forgot the 
you know, some kind of wood bark. I, and anyways, my, 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 there, there are pharmaceuticals, um, digoxin, um, you know, that's a heart drug comes from plants. You know, there are, there are pharmaceuticals that do come from plants, but, uh, generally they, 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 they take out the molecule and then they research it and they develop it and they market it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fox love is what I was trying to come up with for uh, aspirin. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Hey, I just had to show you this cause I went to recently, this is just a little bit off topic, but I thought it'd make you laugh. I recently went to psychedelic science, 2023 in uh, Denver, Colorado, which is uh put on by maps, the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies or psychedelic science. Anyways, I met a pharmacist there and she had a, a bag that caught my eye. And I was like, did you buy this at the, uh, at the conference? And she said, no, I got it at a pharmaceutical conference. I love this bag. It says so many drugs, so little time. <laughs> and it's just funny. You'd think like, you'd think that that's something she would have bought at the psychedelics conference, but she actually got it from a pharmaceutical like rep conference she went to. So just a little laugh there. Well, yeah, that, that was a little laugh and, and that's great. I'd like to hear more about your experience. Um, I'm actually involved with a group called Chicago Med Psychedelics. And uh, we meet monthly um, at this eclectic um, coffee house in Highland Park. And, you know, the group is made up of uh, you know, very well-known in, internationally well-known sometimes doctors, um, uh, I'm the pharmacist, we've got advanced degree nurses, we've got all kinds of healthcare professionals. And we talk about the medical benefits of psychedelics and cannabis. And, um, and, and the coffee house where we meet at is um, in Highland Park, Illinois, and it's owned by, um, by the, the, the front man from the Smashing Pumpkins, Billy. Uh, oh, cool. Billy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. I can't think of his name right now, but yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I'll think of it, but, uh, but we were published in high times magazine in June, um, our group, um, and it, it was pretty cool just to, you know, sort of get that, that, that attention from a magazine that I've, I've personally never read. I mean, I know it's counterculture yeah. and, um, you know, Billy Corgan, Billy Corgan. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah counterculture and, and that, but it was, it was kind of cool. It's been around for 40 years, High Times Magazine. So, um, but yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of good things happening with psilocybin and, 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 and some others, and we'll see what, what the future holds. Yeah. While we're on that topic, I wanted to give you the space to tell people how they can join that. But I also meant to say at the top of the podcast that you also have a podcast. So you can tell, can you ask, tell people how to join the Chicago meetings you just mentioned, but also how to find your own show? Don't you have a show? Um, you know, I, I, I work with the pharmacy podcast network, uh, PPN. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we, you know, I don't have my own podcast, but I do work with, uh, this group out of Pennsylvania and it's, it's probably one of the most popular podcasts out there for pharmacists. I think there's between 98 and 122,000 regular listeners to the pharmacy podcast network. And they've got topics all over the board and I, I'm their, their cannabis topic, and we're going to be doing more on the topic of cannabis and, and psychedelics. Cool. What'd you say the name of the, that podcast was again? Yeah. Pharmacy podcast network. Perfect. PPN and, um, 
you know, I don't have their website in front of me, but I, if you just Google Pharmacy Podcast Network, you'll you'll be able to see it all. Cool. Well, I wanted to uh, get to modern day, and I know that now you're on the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board, but I don't want to skip to that. Uh, we were last talking about, uh, you know, you being in your dispensary and the difference that you offered in the market. Um, is there anything between then and now that you wanted to talk about before we get up to today? Well, you know, what, what happened you know, when, when adult use was coming around and that was the beginning of 2020, uh, I and my good partner, we, we, we were approached by some of these big MSOs and they were, they were on this, this big terror, terror to, you know, buy, buy everybody up and, right all the mom and pop shops and we were a mom and pop shop. And so we, we did sell to one of the big MSOs and um, you know, it, it worked out fine for me. Um, you know, and then I worked for the MSO for just under two years and um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, you know, you talk about what's happening today. I think what's happening today is, you know, these big MSOs have um, you know, legal staffs, legal representation, and they're very concerned about their employees doing or saying anything out of the uh, out of the realm of what they're supposed to do and say. So in other words, a patient walks in and they've got, you know, shoulder pain. Oh yeah, this is good for shoulder pain. I mean, that's about as specific as they can get. They, they, they don't get into the drugs they're taking. They don't get into their medical conditions. They don't get into drug interactions. They can't do that. Um, because they're legally bound not to do that. And so workers in dispensaries today, um, you know, are, it, it's, it's, it's become a transaction. It's very transactional. And you, you walk in, in fact, I was <laughs> a, a buddy of mine from California um, who I helped with uh, getting, getting off of smoking cannabis um, and got him onto edibles and tinctures and things like that that really helped him. Because um, he was developing emphysema and some of the things that prevented him from smoking, he was in town for a few days for a, a high school class reunion and to see his family. And we walked into um, what is what was my old dispensary that was converted into what the MSO turned it into. And um, and there was a, there was a guy at the counter, and we approached the guy, and uh, he was very friendly, and you know, we remembered each other. I guess I, towards the end of owning my dispensary, um, I, I met him or something. But um, my friend was looking at some of the tinctures that this guy brought out, and he goes, "Well, you know, THCA. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of THCA in this, and you know, is that going to give me, you know, the 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 the, the, the psychoactivity that I'm looking for, you know, from a tincture?" And the guy said, oh, well, yeah, you know, that's 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 going to convert to THC. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to mention his name. I said, well, you know, I, I believe that THCA, when it's consumed orally, doesn't convert to THC. I mean, certainly when you smoke it, yes, but right. when you take it orally. And uh, he wasn't sure, but then he did admit that that he thought that was the case, too. But, you know, that's the level of detail that doesn't exist today in medical cannabis dispensaries, or at least what they're allowed and not allowed to say. Yeah. And just because you mentioned it and I wanted to, you mentioned there are acidic forms of cannabinoids and you mentioned THCA. 
I've actually got right. some THCA products and they are interesting because like you say, they are not psychoactive, let's say out of the box or on the shelf. But when you heat the products, the THCA, the acidic form of THCA converts to Delta nine THC via decarboxylation. And, uh, yeah, like you say, but if you took that orally, I don't know, maybe it heats up a little bit in your body, but like you say, probably not enough to, to make it activate into THC. And I realize I'm way out of my understanding right now <laughs> talking about if you, if, if you take, if you take an edible, that is all THCA, you, you might experience some beneficial effects. I mean, sure. if you've got pain or whatever, you're not going to get high from that. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. It's interesting that, uh, so I just wanted to make sure to break it down. Cause you mentioned it like, well, if you heat it, it could, I wanted to break down like what you meant by that. So yeah, that's, that's and then, interesting. And then time stuff. also sitting on the shelf over time, True. it'll, it'll decarboxylate. So you've got that going on. Right. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. You know, what's funny about that, you just mentioned that. So there's these THCA products, like I say, and these are legally stole in retail fronts They they are legal by the farm bill. So they, they don't technically have to be sold in a dispensary. And I've spoken to a few of these companies and they're trying to make the THCA cartridges. But the issue they're having is when they put them on the shelf for a month or so, they decarboxylate. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's a product that you put on the shelf that was legal became illegal. Isn't that funny? Well, yeah. And, you know, and then I, and I think of Delta eight, I mean, yes. how much experience do you have with Delta eight and, um, you know, that's sort of a, the farm bill, you know, loophole mm -hmm. that, you know, companies have realized and have produced these Delta eight products, um, you know, in the labs, converting CBD from hemp into that. And, um, it's not regulated. And, um, I remember doing a presentation in Indiana. Um, I was on a, I was on a panel and there was a big room with all of these vendors and 90% of them were Delta eight vendors. <laughs> And because, you know, um, Governor Holcomb is just, he's not going to do anything unless the federal government does something. Sure. So medical cannabis is never going to be legalized there as long as he's governor. Right. Um, but Delta eight is all over the place and it's, it could be, you know, it could be beneficial. Um, it's kind of like a light beer, but at the same time, a, a buddy of mine went to <laughs> a bakery, um, a local bakery that uh, <laughs> has those things has those products. Yeah, I think I know those, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, I, I think on Super Bowl Sunday, a couple of years ago. And he said, well, you know, what do you got? And uh, the guy said, well, we've got light, you know, um, mid range and, and, and heavy. And he, what do you want? He goes, Oh, I'll just take mid range. And he sold them a cupcake or, or whatever. And it was um, 42 milligrams of Delta eight. So he went to his friend's house. Um, they turned on the Super Bowl. They split it in half. So they each got 20 milli 21 milligrams of Delta-8. And by Tuesday, they were still buzzing. So, you, you know, you just don't know. <laughs> I've been there. And like the, the problem is that when I've been there, I've planned for it. I could see how it'd be an issue if you didn't plan for it. <laughs> right? Right. Well, yeah. Or it's unexpected, right? It's unexpected, you know, you exactly. You get a little bit of a of an effect, but all of a sudden that effect is there and it doesn't go away for a couple of days. That's, that's concerning. 
Yeah. Well, hey, my apologies. I got us off track a little bit. I had asked you, uh, you were explaining a story with your friend and I think we were working our way up to modern day. You said, well, I came back to the dispensary after I had sold it. You know, things had kind of changed. Um, does that jog your memory as to where we were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's fine. I mean, uh, you know, I think with any corporate takeover of a smaller business, um, the employees from the smaller business generally don't last very long. And that was the case here. Um, and, um, you know, the, the dispensary was converted into their, their brand and it's, it's big and beautiful. And they had to relocate it to a, to an area that was more commercial. And, and they did that. What was your dispensary named? I'm not asking its current name, but what was oh, it named? It was called PDI Medical uh, okay. Professional Dispensaries of Illinois. And we just, that's the name that we went with. And, um, and then it, it disappeared after it was sold. So, yep. you know, the, the company, um, and then I worked for the company for just under two years that purchased my dispensary. And, um, you know, it was an interesting, you know, two years. Uh, oh, COVID happened <laughs> right after we sold. So, you know, no one was going into the office. Um, kind of glad I got out of the dispensary business at that time because yeah. we would have remained open and that would have been risky. Um, so, you know, it was just a, it was an interesting experience. So really nothing more than just, you know, the THCA story and my friend, you know, understanding better what tinctures and edibles he could use while he was in Chicago, uh, that to hold him over until he got back home to California. Yeah. Well, feel free to back me up a little bit if I'm skipping too far ahead, if, if there's anything, you know, that happened in your story that, that happened before this but i've been excited to talk to you about the medical cannabis advisory board i know okay. that you had the your first meeting and so i guess i wanted to ask first like how did you join the board and then um i thought maybe it would be interesting to talk about a little bit of history of the board i've got some history with some citations if people want to look into it on a unrelated project that i've been working on uh, but i've got some information about the original medical cannabis advisory board but before we did that, I guess I wanted to ask you, yeah, how did you, I remember the last time we spoke, you, you said, Hey, I'm going to be on the board. Um, but I was curious, like, how did that come to be? Uh, well, okay. The, the original board was created during the Rauner administration and the whole idea behind the board, I think there was nine members um, and their purpose was to um, listen, you know, ha have meetings twice a year, public meetings in the Thompson Center, and patients would come in and say, okay, I, I submitted a petition for my condition I wanted on the medical cannabis, um, um, I wanted on the list of conditions that are approved for medical cannabis. Yep. And so this board, um, you know, the, the patient would fill out something online and submit it, and then they would all come together, you know, twice a year. And so the board would talk about it, and then make a decision. And then that decision would go off to Dr. Shaw, who was the head of the Department of Public Health, and Bruce Rauner. And I think for the time the Medical Cannabis Board was um, active, um, you know, they had four to six meetings. And <laughs> every time they submitted their recommendations to um, Shaw and Rauner, they were all categorically denied. Yeah. And, and so they, I, you know, Ronner started getting, getting a lot of bad press because, you know, some of these conditions were, you know, quali really good 
conditions for medical cannabis and they were all denied. And so the, the board was disbanded, but at the same time, Rauner disbanded the board. I think he added PTSD and, and chronic pain to the list of qualifying conditions. So he tried to save face. Yeah. And if I could read from an article from the time, um, this was uh Chicago Magazine, April 10th, 2017, what happened to Illinois Medical Cannabis Advisory Board? And uh, Lou Lang, uh, Representative Lou Lang, told the group, which included Leslie Mendoza-Temple, Jim Champion, uh, Michael Fine, all members of the now defunct Medical Cannabis Advisory Board, that the governor had offered him a deal in exchange for extending the program another three years and allowing two new conditions, PTSD and terminal illness, to qualify patients for a medical marijuana card, the board must disband. And to your point, there were only six meetings. I'm counting six. One, two, three, four, five, six. And folks, you can look at the meeting agenda and minutes for each of those meetings. As you can see by the purple links here, I've clicked on a few and they're interesting reads. Um well, well, thanks for you know bringing that up. And you know, the two qualifying conditions that Rauner added. Um, you know, I was, I was a little off on that, but I knew it was something along those lines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that board was disbanded and, um, you know, current day, uh, I remember talking to Dr. Leslie Mendoza temple and she mentioned that they're planning on resurrecting the board and she goes, you ought to, uh, you know, apply to be a member of the board, Joe. And I said, okay. So basically I went through a process that everyone that is currently on the board went through um, to submit information, to, you know, do documentation. To, I, I mean, it, it was a lot of, a lot of um, information they wanted to make sure that I was the person who's, who I said I was, as well as, you know, I didn't have any background, you know, negative background information. So um, I applied and it was a process, like I mentioned. And um, I don't know, it took about a year and a half, two years before we had our first meeting, which was just a couple of weeks ago, and it was a virtual meeting. Um, I'm wondering if we're going to have a physical meeting, and we're all wondering, um, are we going to be doing more than just listening to petitions and adding conditions to the medical cannabis um, list of, of qualifying conditions? So so what we don't know, because we're going to have another meeting in February, is, is, is are we going to be doing more? because there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, curbside service, which is something that we were working together with, is one, um, having a patient walk into any dispensary, not just a medical cannabis dispensary, and getting the same yes. you know, price. That they, you know, so, so there's that, because some of them have to travel very far to get to a specific medical cannabis dispensary. Right. Education, education is another thing. Education of dispensary staff, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a number of things that, that we all believe, you know, can be addressed and, and possibly changed. Um, and we'll see if that happens. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be interested, yeah, to see what like power you've been vested with. Cause like you say, in the past, I've read that state law originally created the board to evaluate this, basically what you just exactly said earlier, to evaluate positions, to add new ailments to the program's list of debilitating conditions. The Chicago MAG describes the process as a time-intensive process involving reviewing hundreds of pages of documents, scientific evidence, written and spoken testimony from petitioners and other advocates, then voting to recommend new 
conditions to for the program. But yeah, I am curious if you would have other things or especially I'm glad you brought up education. Um, and maybe you weren't thinking in this way, but you know, I've been asking lately, uh, lawyers. So medical cannabis patients are allowed to cultivate at home, right? Mm-hmm. How do they travel with that product? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you get a lot of mixed answers from law enforcement and attorneys. I've tried both. You know, law enforcement will tell you that cannabis must be in its original dispensary container. And then I say, but officer, I'm allowed to cultivate cannabis at home. Are you saying I can't travel with my medicine? And he's like, oh, yeah, I should talk to the sheriff's board about that one. That's we've not been given any directive on how to deal with that. And then I talk to attorneys and they say basically the same thing. They say, hey, look, we know it's your medical cannabis product, but maybe put it in a container that looks like dispensary packaging. Even this, even though it's not from a dispensary, it, it kind of looks like dispensary packaging. And so they that's that's the advice I've been given by attorneys. But again, I don't know that this is the power vested in the medical cannabis board, but just in the realm of education, it, I'd, be, I'd be interested to see like a topic like that taken on or like a topic you mentioned, which is just like patient education and, and in, in-store education like you used to offer in PDI, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, traveling with cannabis, it's always, we always, uh, if we had that conversation with a patient, we would always say, you know, keep it in your glove compartment. Until right. You right. And, um, you know, and then as far as crossing state lines, well, that's illegal. So bingo, you, you want to get on a plane and fly somewhere with your. And uh, I just mean uh, interstate, but yeah, you're uh, absolutely right. You can't uh, go, you cannot I mean, in inside the state, uh, but yeah, like you say, you cannot, no matter what, cross lines with cannabis because of federal law. Right, right. So, you know, the best advice we gave was don't open it, keep it in your glove compartment. Yeah, yeah. But like you, like I say, with medical cannabis, for example, this is my container for medical. This is my homegrown medical cannabis. <laughs> so yeah, that's not going to fly. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's like, well, hmm. So anyways, uh, I'm just curious, I will be curious and I'm hoping you get the answer. What other, you know, will you be limited to recommending conditions or will you have some other leeway in the form of at least informing the public? Not that you're like changing policy or anything like that, but at least providing, because I do feel that there's just so much in this that that lacks clarity, you know, with, with cannabis. And so everybody's like, I mean, some people would think, well, I grew this at home and since I'm allowed to, I could travel with it, right? I don't know. I've not been able to get a clear answer. Um, well, we were actually encouraged, you know, one of the um, one of the um, state employees that, that organized the meeting, you know, who ran the meeting, you know, we asked the question, are, are we going to be able to make some of these recommendations or have these discussions about improving the program because we all feel that medical patients are being left out, um, yeah. you know, when they walk into dispensaries. Um, you know, that's that's not to say that all dispensaries are that way, but most of them are. You know, yeah. there, are there are actually some quality people working in dispensaries that can offer up some good information. But um, but I think the idea here is um, the state was, you know, they they they, they said yeah well. We'll have that discussion and we're open, we're open to having that discussion about improving the medical cannabis program for patients in Illinois. So we'll see what that means when we have future meetings. 
Awesome. And how did that, aside from that, how did the first meeting go? All I'm able to see right now, by the way, for this is the agenda. And I'm not asking you this. I'm just, just speaking out loud. I can only see the agenda for your most previous meeting. I don't see the minutes yet, but I'm just curious, looking at the agenda, was there anything else notable that you felt like would be cool talking about? Well, it sounds like this is where that came up. Probably point number skip six, roll and scope. You were probably like, what is our, you know, what is the scope of our, <laughs> right? Right, right. No, 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 it's good. It's You've got, a, you, you've got a, your, your, your fingers on the pulse of this thing. So that's cool. Um, the, the, the meeting went on f- not for the entire length of time that was allocated for the meeting. And what was also surprising to me is the first medical cannabis advisory board was like nine board members. Yeah. This one, I don't know how many members there are. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's 16 or 26. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of a list of everyone that's on the board and what their positions are. So, so I guess I'm concerned about, okay, if you've got 26 people on this board and I'm not sure that's the number, how are we going to get anything done? You know? Right. Um, so we'll see, I guess we'll, we'll get more information for the February meeting. And I think we, what we need to do is go on the um, IDFPR's website and see when the meeting is and, and, and search it out because I'm not sure they're going to be offering up that information through emailing all of us or I'm not exactly sure how what's going to happen, but we'll I'll be talking to some people that are on the board and we'll we'll figure this out. Yeah, and folks, I'll do my best to share the information. All I can see is it looks like the upcoming meeting is in February of 2024 based off of the agenda, but like when and and like you say, how you get notified, obviously as the public, we may not since we're not on the board. Um, but, but the public will be notified. Oh, they will be. Okay, good. Because because there was there was a couple of people that you know they opened it up for public comment, and there was a couple of people that were on in that virtual meeting that had three minutes to talk, yeah. and so the public will be notified. Cool. Well, folks, if you want to set up a place to kind of keep an mm-hmm. eye on this, I would I can put this link in the um, podcast description. This is. This is where I've been able to find all of the meeting agendas and meeting minutes for all of the medical cannabis advisory committee board meetings. So, um, so yeah, this is where the new one will pop up um, and you'll be able to click on it. And it even has the WebEx link or a call in thing. And I think you would be able to listen in, which is pretty cool. That's so, perfect. That's yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Trying to keep the public uh, informed. Well, um, I want to be respectful of your time, Joseph. Are you good uh, just for a little bit of longer, just to close out with some sure, conversation? Sure. Cool. I'm good. Sweet. Well, how do you, are you, do you, you, can I ask you if, if this is too personal of a question, it's okay, but do you use cannabis often? And the reason I was asking is my follow-up question would be, how do you feel about the market today? But I didn't <laughs> know, do you use it often or whatever? Well, I was noticing you using it, so that's yeah. <laughs> I can ask you the same question, and I and I have that answer, right? Um, I um, I I, I do occasionally. Um, I, again, I'm you know, cannabis is medicine. That's how I use it. Um, I don't really use it to get high, but but I developed uh, maybe about three years ago um, tinnitus in my right ear. 
And I remember having a patient that had really bad tinnitus. I call it tinnitus. Doctors call it tinnitus. Anyways, in both ears. And I remember doing the research Mm -hmm. and I learned that THC can aggravate the condition. So I'm very careful about using THC because I don't want to aggravate the condition in my right ear. It's not bad. It's very, it's very mild, but at the same time, um, I'm not going to use cannabis uh, that often because it does aggravate the condition. Yeah. That makes so I sense. do use it for sleep. Um, and uh, that's really about it. In fact, I was just, uh, <laughs> I saw <clears throat> um, uh, Bruce Springsteen um, at Wrigley Field. Yeah. And it was interesting because, um, you know, one of the couples that we were with were from out of town and he wanted to, you know, pick up a joint. Sure. And um, we walked into the dispensary that's right by Wrigley Field. Um, and, uh, and I, yeah, I walked in too. I mean, and that's the company that purchased my dispensary. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, remember I figured I'd just pick up the edibles that I like, you know, which is a one-to-one indica gummy, um, that just helps me with sleep. And, uh, I went up to the, to the, um, the person behind the cashier and I said, Oh, okay, I'm going to buy this. And okay, fine. She goes, are you going to the event tonight? I said, Oh, you mean Springsteen? He goes, yeah. Well, if you show me your ticket, you know, you know, we're offering up a $20 discount on that product. I said, wow. So it would have cost me like $30 plus all the taxes wound up costing me like $13 total for this container of, of, of gummies that I actually that ain't bad. So I thought that was pretty cool. Good marketing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That ain't a bad deal in Illinois. No, 13 no. bucks. That's not, and I and I think prices. Yeah, you know, I was just reading an article on in the Massachusetts on how the decline in price is forcing a lot of dispensaries out of business. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of activity going on. Um, we'll just see how, how all this. And, and then I think by the end of the year, and maybe maybe you're hearing this too, is uh, we might see something on the federal level as far as relief from the Schedule One um, jail that the industry is in. Yeah, it it does seem I am I know what you're referring to. It has become unclear to me though in the past few days I saw somebody asking HHS, which I believe is who President Biden directed to send a letter to the DEA to start that process and they had no record of the letter ever being <laughs> sent. So wow. a reporter recently or actually no, I don't mean to say a reporter. A reporter shared the story, but I believe a elected representative has now asked the DEA, do you have you know, did you receive this letter? Because yeah, everybody's talking about this happening at the end of the year, but um people are trying to figure out like where in the process are you? And that to me is not a good sign. But hey, fingers crossed that everything we're hearing becomes true. I, I would love, personally, I'd love for cannabis to be descheduled. I don't know how you right. feel about this topic, but I think descheduling is is the best way to go. Um, I've con- I've heard concerns about rescheduling, and it's the idea that if you put it in a different schedule, well, let's just put it this way. This is kind of a joke somebody made. They said, well, cocaine is technically a lower schedule than cannabis, but how easy is quality you know safe regulated cocaine you know how how easy is that to to acquire in other words the point is just because we reschedule cannabis that may not solve the problem depending on the schedule we put it put it into and the people we allow to control it you know what i'm saying 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I've got an additional thing to say about that. You know, I think descheduling is the way to go. Um, rescheduling means that the federal government is still overseeing this. Right. And we really don't want that. We really don't want dispensaries under... When I worked for a compounding pharmacy right before um, I opened the dispensary, my dispensary, um, we saw an inspector like once every two years, right? Mm -hmm. I had I had an inspector in my dispensary four times the first year we were opera operational. So so they really pay attention to this, but it's for all the wrong reasons. I mean, they were looking for things that we were doing wrong. And, you know, one of the things that we were doing wrong, and I don't know how much more time we have. Oh, I'm uh, good on time. I'm totally good on time. I was just trying to be respectful of yours. Okay. So. Um, at the beginning of the program, um, as the growers were coming online, we only had flower product. And I uh, had one young couple that had a child who um, they were caregivers and their child was a patient. And so it, that was all copacetic from that standpoint. Um, they needed something for their child's seizure disorder. And since we didn't have any other products besides flour, we had a product called an easy butter maker. Yeah. And you can you know convert the flour into an oil. Anyway, so we gave the the parents specific instructions on how to make an oil and we a particular flower product that we had and we calculated out all the, the the cannabinoids in there and what you would get and how you would do it and the dose that you would use and um and it worked i mean this 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 kid's seizure disorder actually got better um but we had an inspector come in like a couple months later and and you know the question was one of the questions was have you sold any flour to a miner? And our response was, well, when that's all we had, yes. And, and you know, it was in our bio track record, right? And then we got fined for doing that. So, boom, you know, we're doing the, we're doing the right thing, but, but we're getting penalized. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an interesting one because they just assume because the product is flour and typically people smoke flour, they like, well, you can't sit, but it's like, we're not even using it that way. You just said you're infusing it, you know? So right. it is edible. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> we just took a few, took a few extra steps. Well, we took the steps that, that were available at that time. Correct. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I guess my point in bringing up descheduling is folks, I don't know if you knew this, but you know, the list of controlled substances, Joseph, feel free to disagree with me as a pharmacist, but they're only fun drugs um and that's just kind of a joke to be more serious let's just to make my point neither alcohol or tobacco are le are legally listed as controlled substances and i think cannabis should at the very least even though we can agree that they're not the same as those two other drugs i mentioned that should be at least at the very least treated the same right I agree. I mean, you know, we've got Breaking Bad, Walter White, and methamphetamine, and that's in the same category as cannabis. And, you know, that'll rot out your teeth and uh, destroy your life. And um, sure. yeah, you know, cannabis is very different. It doesn't do that. So, and, and we don't have to get into that, but it's just, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. It's our federal government is embarrassing. I just, it's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that alcohol is basically as legal as it is because it's in our freaking constitution 
<laughs> tobacco is just kind of like, I don't know exactly. Well, ATF, the ATF regulates alcohol and tobacco, I, I guess you could say, and firearms. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm just thinking about this dichotomy in the country that we live in. It's it's interesting to me that we have a constitutional amendment that guarantees our right to, uh, you know, consume alcohol. Um, but then cannabis a drug and psilocybin, you know, other psychedelics are in this crazy scheduling regime. It's just, uh, yeah, I think people get my point. Um, right. but, but I feel like we got off on a little bit of a tangent. How do you, you told me about your use and stuff, but how, and you, I guess maybe you said you, you were offered a pretty good deal. So maybe that was your comment on the market as it stands, but did you have any other thoughts on the market as it stands from a consumer perspective, uh, or anybody else that you've talked to? Well, you know, I, 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 uh, you brought up some really good points, by the way, the curbside and the shopping at every store, like, come on, we need that yeah, to happen. Yeah, there, there's some other, there's some other points. Let me just see if I've got, I can pull that up real quick. Sure. Or, um, let's see. Oh yeah. Here we go. Um, Yeah, we want to address uh, bullet points on the caregiver program, allow caregivers to cultivate. Uh, you know, Michigan has a program like that, allow people to be caregivers to more than one patient, reduce the caregiver fees. There's homegrown access. I, I think you can appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Um, there's um, all dispensary access for med patients. We talked about that. Supply issues. Demand study to identify and address supply issues for medical patient needs. Home delivery, that's another one. Um, uh, administrative is issues. The state needs to improve IDPH site with a reliable, updated, useful information for patients. Virtual cards are unpopular with many patients. Can we offer an option? Um, <sighs> Oh, here's another good one. It's um, safety at cannabis events. Mm. Um, I know someone who went to a consumption lounge recently and there was a gravity bong, I think it's called. Um, yeah. She's at a consumption lounge and she took a hit of that. Mm -hmm. And this person doesn't have any kind of seizure disorder, never had, but had a seizure. And, um, you know, was on the, on the floor, you know, peeing in her pants and convulsing. And she was with a friend who was a social worker. So she had, you know, some help, but there was no one at the dispensary that was able to offer her any, any help or assistance or no one called 911. So, so the, her friend took her out into the parking lot and she's like throwing up and, and, and there's someone getting in their car right next to where they're at. And who worked at the dispensary and she goes, well, what happened? Are you okay? And, and she was getting better that she sat her down by a tree and she was, she was recovering, but she said, well, yeah, I, I use this. And I, I, I think it's called a gravity bong. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and, and I had this reaction. She goes, Oh, we've had a lot of reactions like that. <laughs> and so, so this woman who's a, Who's an activist, um, you know, in the in the industry, has developed a company to offer up um, 
you know, emergency, emergency medical treatment personnel to attend all cannabis related events, you know, that are out there. And I think she's got something going. So we'll, we'll see, but that, that is one of the, one of the issues we want to discuss with the state. Awesome. I'll uh, show a visual of what I think you're talking about right now, because they're pretty popular and they're at most of the smoking lounges right now. It's this device, it's called a student glass. And so he's using water. The water and gravity is what's pulling the smoke through. And then it shoots it using gravity into your mouth. And it's like a really large amount of smoke that you probably naturally would not be able to pull out of a bowl. And it just shoots it so quickly into your mouth and like down your throat that, yeah, it, especially if you're not seasoned and by seasoned, I mean like used to smoking like that, like, yeah, that could really overdo it for you. I mean, you know, yeah, I could see how people could have scary experiences. I do get a little hesitant about that requirement uh, to have medical perfect like i don't know i think training should be required or something there's yeah there should be something more but I, the only reason i get a little like hesitant on that is i've been actually visiting some of the consumption lounges around state and one of the cool things about the way that the law is written with consumption lounges and i wanted to get back to some other points you brought up but just really quickly consumption lounges i think are one of the easiest businesses cannabis businesses to open in the state of illinois right now because all you need to open up one of those lounges. And maybe this is maybe this point I'm about to make is to my detriment when you want to talk about patient safety, that it is so easy. Maybe there should, maybe you would argue there should be more steps or whatever. And I argue maybe more training. But anyways, you just need a tobacco retail permit, which I could go and buy one right now and probably have one in an hour. And then you need uh approval from your local municipality you know zoning whoever does that stuff and you can open up a cannabis consumption lounge and two locations have done that in downstate so to back up for a second as you mentioned if you open a dispensary you are allowed to open up a consumption lounge on site there's a carve out uh from the illinois smoke free act that uh, classifies consumption lounges uh, as not a public place. So if it's because a public place is covered under the smoke free act. Right. So anyways, just to kind of get back to my main point, I, I worry a little bit because I've talked to some of these business owners downstate that were able to just open up shop pretty easily. And so I always get a little hesitant when we talk about adding more rules, but these rules are in good spirit. And I do think that like, it's worth having a conversation. I will say that they have their own mitigation strategies in place, the the stores that I have, but they differed. They weren't standard, right? So one one place offered a CBD water. Whether or not that works, right? I don't know. Um, other places like had their own mitigation technique. And so I do feel you're highlighting a real issue, but I guess the only reason I'm hesitant is just because of like the bar culture. And I'm not saying that that that's better that we should model this after that but just the fact that you know um but like i don't know i kind of like the idea of keeping a cannabis consumption lounge as simple as opening a bar to i felt like i got long-winded there but that was kind of my point you know you know and and, and i hear your point and, and and maybe that's a good idea you know yeah. keep it regulated like a bar um, but and, to your point, like a bar, there is some accountability in place where like the bartender 
has to like like they could get in trouble for over serving you right so there's a, there's actually some accountability in place so maybe that's what's worth talking about you know what i mean like how do we put some accountability and uh, and, and over serving i mean how much right would that True. dispensary worker know that they're over serving <laughs> true because that can vary from person to person patient to patient depending upon their use and their tolerance levels and all of that i mean drinks are easy you know there's there's alcohol and there's a percentage of alcohol in a beer or in a in a drink and you know 20 of those are, are going to do a number on you um mm-hmm. yeah i i think that's going to be very complicated yeah yeah. Uh, well, one of the points you brought up earlier, and I wanted to bring this up maybe to put a little arrow in your sheath, because um, not a lot of people I feel like realize, and maybe you do, but I, I wanted to say it for public knowledge and maybe for your benefit. You brought up uh, caregivers and how you know maybe we could add some more flexibility on that subject. And I feel like there's a line in the law that that affords us that flexibility, but without clarification, it's unsure. Like I'm unsure. So. In the CRTA, it says cannabis plants may only be tended by registered qualifying patients who reside at the residence or their authorized agent attending to the residence for brief periods, such as when the qualifying patient is temporarily away from the residence. Hmm. However, authorized agent is not defined at all in the CRTA. And as you know, the term that we would use is caregiver. So I don't know if this is just like an oversight in the law or what exactly this means. I've asked the state for clarity. I've not gotten any. Um, but this is an interesting thing where because I've heard where you're talking about and and you're absolutely right. As far as I understand it, you know, you're, we share an understanding, um, but I've always been unclear as to what this language in the law means. And to me, it 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 seems to indicate that somebody could tend to the plants when the qualifying patient is quote temporarily away, <laughs> you know, but it's just very unclear. Yeah. What's an authorized agent, right. Define mm-hmm. that. that. That's a good point. And, you know, you've done a lot more um, in-depth reading than, than I've done. I mean, I'll probably have to now that I'm on, I'm on the medical cannabis advisory board. No, but that was for you, right? That was an arrow sheath for you. Now you got it in your back. You can. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we used to have, I mean, our, the security person in our dispensary was actually um, a fireman and he, and he had, uh, you know, EMT training. And so we, we had some issues. We had some seizures. We had some people falling down and, and we were right there with, you know, instead of calling 911 right away, we were right there with everything that was needed to help that patient at that moment. So, and then I do dispensaries have that kind of, you know, personnel. I, 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 I doubt it. I don't right. think so. Right. Yeah. Um. Sorry. You, you had, if you put that paper back away, could you briefly run through that list again? I feel like there was one other one that I had a thought on that I lost. Okay. Um, caregiver program, home grow access yep. at dispensary, all dispensary access for medical patients, yep. supply issues, home delivery, admin issues, product potency. No THC caps, increase THC from 100 milligrams per product for edible yes. tinctures. I love that. Milligrams. Yeah. That's yeah. a good one. 
that's a really good one dude we have our edibles with the 100 milligrams it's it it can feel pretty ridiculous especially when i just went to michigan and you can buy 200 milligram edibles on the adult use side for six dollars wow yeah yeah so i bought a few um but uh i was gonna show you so you had asked me um i'm pulling up this clip really quick um I might not actually be able to cue that up right now. You you had asked me maybe like my thoughts on the market and I can try to keep it short. I'm unhappy as a consumer of cannabis, honestly. And it's maybe it's because I'm privileged. You know, my first cannabis market that I shopped in was Colorado. And so that was where the bar was, you know, deli style cannabis, cheap, cheap, affordable quality cannabis. And so when you switch over to this market, it it felt a little jarring, you know. Um, it, it, the the pharmaceutical feel, and no offense to pharmacists, but it didn't feel like a dispensary, right? It felt like didn't even feel like a gas station. It feels <laughs> like way too clean, and and I'm not saying that cl- cleanliness, especially for a medical cannabis dispensary, that's all. These are all good things. I'm just saying that it, it really did seem like. That was the jarring thing I noticed as a consumer coming to this coming to this market. And then of course the prices and lack of selection. And and I feel like that can all be attributed to um our attitudes about how we've structured this market. You know, people in Illinois politics and even folks that are searching for that are fighting for licensees or have licensees will say uh, that other states that have allowed for more people to participate are examples of failures because, at, well, you mentioned it earlier, dispensaries going out of business as a result of high, uh, low prices, you know, prices lowering. And if I could try to put it in a bottle, I wanted to place the, play this clip from our governor, J.B. Pritzker, footage from December 7th, 2022, where he talks about this exact topic and he tells us the state's view on this topic. Uh, let's take a look at this short clip. I think it's like 45 seconds at the most. The number of licensees in- Restart that. We've limited the number of licensees in part because we wanted to make sure that the social equity licensees had a fair shot in the industry and they weren't just edged out to the very end uh, and by, you know, having too many dispensaries in the market so that people can't make money, uh, entrepreneurs who open places like uh, Ivy Hall. So uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, in many ways, I, I think that the what you all uh, view as a you know as a slow plotting process is also one that uh, ends up with um, you know the the right uh, um, regulation and the right laws in place and the industry growing at a pace that will allow social equity to take place within the entire cannabis industry, which is one of the purposes of it. So that was a very eloquent way of like putting the state's attitude like out there on this subject. And um, I don't know. I I understand the logic and rationale behind it. I'm not saying that I don't. In fact, if I could just briefly put it another way, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts on this topic, but 
Um, an advocate recently came on our show. I believe it was J.R. Fleming, if folks want to uh, check it out. And he said, look, Cole, when this program started in Illinois, these companies, these big companies all had a guaranteed market share. He said, that's what we're asking for. That's what this social equity thing is, is giving us that same opportunity they had. In other words, issuing a limited number of licenses that ensures our success. And I understand that logic and I like understand the good intentions behind it. It just seems that from a consumer's perspective, it doesn't like it, it's it's more business friendly than it is consumer friendly. Do you get what I'm saying by that? Yeah, sure. I, I get exactly what you're saying. And, uh, you know, it's not like a gas station where everyone drives cars and needs gas. I mean, it's it's a limited market. There's not everyone that's going to want it, even on the adult side. And, you know, I think slow, slowly growing and adopting and, and getting the education and the information out there that, you know, <laughs> this might be better than a glass of wine at dinner, you know, you know, to calm your nerves after a hard day at work kind of thing. I mean, that's all a very slow grinding process. Yeah. And, and you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you, you go ahead. You know, I, I have some notes on the back of, um, this list of things that we wanted to discuss for the meeting. Um, and I thought this would be interesting to kind of review. There's 550 patient applications per week coming into the state. Uh -huh. um, there's 830 renewals extensions per week. There's 138,220 active patients. Um, there are 377 in the opioid alternative program. So that's not very successful. And there's 52 qualifying conditions. Um, oh, so it's gonna be 16 members. It's a four year term as far as the board members. Um, the governor will select the, the, the who's gonna chair it. And, um, and the meetings will be posted on the IDFPR website um, 48 hours in advance. Awesome, cool. Cool. Well, yeah, folks. So if uh, that website that I'll have in the podcast description, keep your eyes in on it in February. And I'll, I will too. And I'll try to send you out a note so that maybe you can listen in and just be better informed if that's something that you uh, find yourself wanting to do. Um, and we don't know what day, 48 hours in advance. That's to, so. right. Well, right. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm struggling to think of the term right now, but uh, if I think of it, there's there's something you can actually set up. It's called like a ping trip. You basically set up, uh, it monitors any website. So I could set it up to monitor that website. And if oh. something changes on it, it'll email me. So oh, good yeah, idea. yeah, so I might do that. But I, I guess just to take, uh, take a, my thing a step further and wrap it up, I, I just feel that the limitations on licenses lends itself. And this is the worst part about it all. You know, I could talk about how much it sucks as a consumer and how the high prices are, but that's, would you, would you agree that maybe somebody from Alabama would be like, Hey Cole, you sound kind of privileged right now. You're able to buy weed in a store. I can't, hmm. you know, like, so I'll, I'll give you that. Right. I'll give you that. I'm complaining about things that consumers in other states aren't able to complain about. Here's here's my real issue with the limitation on licenses on licenses and that entire attitude of like guaranteeing success 
it in a weird way, it seems to have lended itself to the continued criminalization of cannabis. I've been asking people. In fact, I just had attorney uh, Bob Galholtra. He's a really well-known Cook County attorney. Um, he just actually even gave a speech. Uh, it was going to be at the Cresco Education Center, but it ended up being uh, rescheduled to being online. Uh, we released it, but they also released it as a YouTube recording. So if you'd like to see it, you can. At the at the end of that recording, I asked, why do you think possession limits still exist? Because that's one of the things he continues to have to defend people against the state on. And he said, well, frankly, the current companies benefit from having possession limits because then you are forced to well, buy a smaller amount at their store, keep going back and if you are buying larger amounts out of it, like it keeps people in their market. And so mm. it wouldn't benefit them to continue the decriminalization of cannabis. And that goes, that extends itself to homegrow. You know, I've even asked some of these new craft licensees, how do they feel about homegrow? Maybe they could get some, ex, you know, energy from the community for their proposals if they paired their proposals with, you know, pro community proposals if you follow mm -hmm. and they say look cole i get where you're coming from but how is homegrow going to affect our market and i was like but that's not I, I that's where i get a little uh that's where i get a little bit confused about protecting the market because i'm like was this about protecting people's market share or was this about not throwing people in a cage anymore for simple possession use or cultivation of can cannabis um right i know i'm thinking out loud right now and yeah yeah th th those are those are interesting things that you said and um i haven't really given any thought to the idea of limited licenses and you know how it affects criminalization um you know i think criminalization or decriminalization is is its own animal and I know Pritzker has, you know, decriminalized, you know, cannabis, at, at least, you know, the people that are using small amounts, it's, it, it's, right. it's a traffic ticket, you know, it's a parking ticket. So I, I think that's, you know, maybe where my thought is on, on what you just said. Yeah. 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 I just, I guess to put it in another short way, it seems like the mechanism of enforcement for this system is the enforcement is the system that we talked about dismantling. In other words, if you don't walk on this tightrope or if I did anything that these licensed cultivators do, if I sold this homegrown cannabis, I, they would throw the color of the law at me versus like if they make a mistake, it's a citable offense. And we've seen that like time and time again. And that that's like the, that's the thing. And I, I've just asked like if these, you'd think these companies would be at the front of the line to to end all of this but as i've been told maybe that's not in their financial interest but again i'm just thinking out loud at this point my apologies that's okay <laughs> um so well hey joseph uh before we go um any other thoughts on on anything that we've discussed today or anything that that we didn't discuss today that you wanted to mention I think we've been going for about an hour and a half <laughs> i think we covered everything cool. i mean certainly there's more um things to discuss, but I think um, it's, it, I'm good at, at this point. 
Cool. Sounds good. Well, hey, I'd love to have you back on in the future and don't feel bad about going for an hour and a half. We are uh, notorious for long format conversations. I, oh, you are. Okay. It's, okay. it's something that I love, but um, I, I agree though, you know, we've uh, we've exhausted our topics for today. I'd love to reconnect you, uh, with you in the future, maybe even after this February meeting to see uh, how you're feeling about things and um, uh yeah, uh, I just wanted to say again, I appreciate your time and what you do. Sure, well, I, I appreciate being on your show and um, and thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, I hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care. <laughs>